All right, well, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, and as you do, grab your Bibles, and uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. We did it last week. We're going to try to do it again this week and tackle an entire chapter together, 27 verses. We'll, we'll not be looking at each verse obviously, in near the depth or detail as we do sometimes. But I just want to explain briefly for you how chapter 9 interacts with chapter 8 because they actually form a set together. And, and actually, if we even think ahead to next week and the beginning of July, chapter 10 kind of rounds out the set. 8, 9, and 10 are, are essentially a, kind of about the same thing. They begin with the question about food sacrifice to idols. Chapter 10 ends with a conversation about food sacrifice to idols. And so there, it, it's this conversation, it's this question, it's this discussion of ultimately what do we do as a body of believers where we don't all agree on everything. And the idea here is, is not necessarily belief, it's not theology, it's not even things that are clearly sinful or not sinful. It has to do with the area of life that we might frame and describe as uh, freedoms or preferences. So some of the examples that I threw out last week to just kind of help us get our minds wrapped around this is, is, is what do we do as believers as we have conversations or interact with other believers who would have different personal convictions about alcohol than we might. Or card playing. I'm not sure card playing is as big of a deal now as it was at some point decades ago. But our community group last Sunday, I believe it was last Sunday, um, just kind of observed in conversation that the, the reason the game Rook exists is because there was a community of people that said, well, we like the game Euchre, but we don't do face cards. So we're going to have cards with animals on it and numbers. And then you had Rook emerge because the face cards were of the devil or whatever that might have been. I, uh, I think it kind of predates my existence here on the earth. But dancing could be thrown out in that Perhaps even military engagement to a certain degree. There, that might fit in a personal preference, personal conviction category. And in chapter 8, the example that Paul uses is in answering and comes actually right from what the Corinthians had written to him. And he answers their question, but he expands the answer so far beyond the very specific issue that they had Asked him, And so if you just go to chapter 8, verse 1, you can see very quickly what the issue is that is at hand. And he says this, now concerning food offered to idols. So the words now concerning, as they have all along, signal for us that something is going to be said now that is in reference to or in connection to something the Corinthians had either written about or asked about. Whatever the scenario was that Paul got their questions, he's now answering them. And it's one of several different times that he uses those words now concerning in this letter. And it just signals for us, I got, I'm now answering this question you gave me. And the question they asked was the question about food sacrificed to idols. And what happens 
And what appears to be happening is that there was a group of believers in the Corinthian church that had the right theology. Their knowledge was spot on. And so when they began to consider whether or not they could go to a banquet at at a temple for a pagan deity where that meat and those those grains and those fruits and vegetables had been offered in sacrifice to that pagan deity. They had said our theology that pagans actually, idols are not real, that there's only one God and he's the maker of heaven and earth, that their theology led them to be free to participate in that meal. But the question emerges, and the question that Paul raises is a question as to whether or not they should, because that action of theirs is actually causing other brothers and sisters in their local body to struggle. And so he writes in verse 3, I believe, of chapter 8, or excuse me, verse 2, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so yes, Corinthian church, here in this conversation, you have the right knowledge. Your theology is spot on. But this stretches beyond what you know and extends to what you do. And your actions are to be loving and building. And so he concludes that in verse 13 and just says, look, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And so here's just the brief summary of chapter 8. And then I'll explain to you how chapter 9 interacts with this. That verses 1 and 3, the, the big idea there is that love is greater than knowledge. Knowledge by itself is going to puff up. Knowledge by itself, if not coupled with love, even the right theology, if not coupled with love, is going to cause and lead to arrogance. But love builds. And so as you and I are part of this body of believers, we are told that we're God's building. But we're also told that we're part of those who are building. And so when we come, there's two things that should be happening. We should be wondering and asking and and seeking the Lord as to who we might build up and encourage while we're together. But then we should also have some expectation to receive from one another encouragement and building. But we can't err on one side or the other. We've got to have both. We've got to look for both. We've got to seek both. Love is greater than knowledge. And in verses 4 through 8, Paul just, he acknowledges their theology is right. And concludes with them, yes, food is just food. There is not a set of evil spirits occupying that filet mignon that have to be exercised by the sacrificing of, the, of that cow's kidneys to the pagan deity Apollos. It's just not... How it works. Food is just food. You're not better off if you eat it. You're not worse off before the Lord if you do not eat it. It's just food. But in 9 through 12, he says, but you got to eat in ways that are loving. And so if you know that a brother or sister would struggle and stumble because their conscience is weak. And they see you in the banquet hall eating. 
And it causes them to have a crisis of faith that you have actually sinned against your brother or sister and the Lord because you've caused them to stumble. And I'm just fascinated by the fact in chapter 8 that Paul acknowledges that the one who struggles is the one who has the weak conscience. That the command he give is, it gives is not to the weak to somehow find a way to become strong. The command is to, quote unquote, the strong to lay down and surrender their rights on behalf of the weak. We cannot, nor should we miss that. That it may not be our fault or our problem, but in this body it becomes our responsibility. Chapter 9 is Paul taking those principles that he outlined in chapter 8 and applying them to his own life and illustrating for the Corinthians what this looks like in and through his ministry. And there's an interesting interrelationship between chapter 8 and 9. Chapter 8, the focus seems to be on the, the relationship between believers in the church with other believers in the church. In chapter 9, especially towards the end, the focus becomes the relationship between believers in the church with unbelievers outside of the church. And so this idea of surrendering our rights for and to one another for their betterment and their benefit is not just a believer and believer dynamic. We're going to see really clearly that it's actually a believer and an unbeliever dynamic as well. And it's a huge part and aspect to our witness to the world. So before we go any further, let's pray, and then we're going to be getting hopping into chapter 9 and see if we can't make sense of what Paul has written. So join me. Father God, we come before you and we ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that we wouldn't be like those in Jesus' day that saw and heard the parables, they saw the miracles and they didn't understand. That we wouldn't be like those in Isaiah's day where he came faithfully preaching what you had told him to say and they heard it and they saw it and they didn't get it. God, would you be gracious to us and help us get it? God, would you help us to hear this morning from your word what we need to hear? Would you help us to see this morning in your word what it is that we need to see? And God, would you work in us and on us that we might be willing to surrender rights, surrender freedoms for the sake of the gospel? That we would do so because it is a way to love and build up one another. But we would also do so because it is a way to not get in the way of unbelievers hearing the good news of Jesus. God, to that end we pray 
And we ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, chapter 9 breaks down essentially into two different aspects. And these, these are my breakdowns, so you're not going to find them that clear in your Bible. But verses 1 to 18 essentially are a, a defense of Paul's ministry. Uh, not that there's a question per se of outright attack against him, but rather just him explaining what it is that he has done and why it is that he does what he has done. And if you actually look through verses 1 to 18, Paul uses the word for seven different times. And that word in our Bibles and the word as it's used in the Greek language is a word that says, here's the reason why. He's explaining himself, and he's explaining his actions, and he's explaining his convictions, and he's saying, look, th- this, is, this is the defense that I would give as to why I've chosen to do what I've done. And then in verses 19 to 27, he gives himself or puts himself forward as an example to follow. And there, the word so that shows up a bunch. Now, you're going to see it in different ways in our English Bible. Sometimes it'll just get translated as that. Sometimes it'll get translated in order that. Sometimes it'll be translated as the word to. I've done this to. And then he makes a statement. Well, there the point is just here's the purpose of my actions. So I'm giving you myself as an example to follow. I'm telling you that as your father in the Lord, that I want you to follow my lead. Here's what I've done. Here's why I've done it. And here's the purpose for which I have done it. And he uses the word so that 11 different times, I believe, between verses 19 to 27. And he's saying, here's the example. Now, verses 1 to 18, in his defense of his ministry deal almost, not entirely, but almost exclusively with Paul talking about himself earning a living from the Corinthians. He's talking, and if we just kind of moved it forward to our context, he's talking about a pastor being paid for leading a church. And he walks through that. And I want to show you what the key to the text is. And I think it will make sense as we get there. But in verse 12 of chapter 9, Paul writes this. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. We're going to unpack this as we go. I want to just kind of show you the key to the whole section. But we endure everything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. This will be the first of three times that Paul writes about surrendering his right, sacrificing his right as he identifies it to earn a living from the Corinthian church because he didn't want to confuse the issue of the gospel. We're going to make some sense of that as we go because there's some cultural things happening in the first century Roman Greek context that we can find ourselves prone to or tempted towards, but aren't nearly as identical today as they might have been then. But Paul here says, look, I I chose to not exercise this right I had because I didn't want to confuse the gospel. I didn't want there to be an obstacle And so he begins in verse 4, identifying three examples of surrendering his rights. Let's begin in verse 1, and then we will 
get there. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship? I mean, there's, there's four questions that are asked there. Hypothetical questions per se, or rhetorical questions better yet, where the answer to all of them is the answer yes, and that is what he intends for them to say. Am I not free? Yes, Paul, you're free. Am I not an apostle? Yes, Paul, you're an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, you have seen Jesus our Lord. Are you not my workmanship? Yes, we are your workmanship. If to others I am not an apostle... At least I am to you. For, so there's, an, there's one of our explanations, you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And here, just Paul introduces this idea, and, he, and the, the point he is making is that as a free person, as an apostle, as one who has seen and been commissioned by the Lord, he has, on good authority, the ability to claim some rights. But he's chosen to surrender them. That's the big idea. Don't forget that in this. Let's not miss the forest for the trees. Paul is saying, I'm surrendering my rights. And here he just begins with these rhetorical questions. Kind of setting the stage to make the point. And you are the seal of my apostleship. And there he says, church, I want you to look around. I want you to see what's happened. I want you to take a look at yourselves. I want you to examine what has been the fruit of my ministry in and among you. I want you to consider what I have said and how I have been resolved to, to teach and preach only Christ crucified. And I didn't come with worldly wisdom and worldly ways to try to persuade you with, with wise sayings like the Greeks wanted. Nor did I come with lots of miracles to try to wow you like the Jews wanted. I just came and told you about Jesus. And you know what? The Holy Spirit spirit went to work as the gospel was preached and he did what only he can do and I want you to just look around and observe the fruit that has happened from my time with you he continues in verse 3 this is my defense to those who would examine me that word examine is actually the exact same word that he would write and did so in chapter 4 where he's talking about the Corinthians judging him And he makes the statement there, you guys can say what you want about me, but it doesn't really matter what you think, it matters what Jesus thinks. And he's going to judge me one day for what I do and say, and I'm a whole lot more concerned about that moment than I am about what you have to say in these moments. So he's again referencing that there might be those that are examining or judging his ministry and what he is doing. And there in verse 4, he begins to articulate some of these rights. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Again, a rhetorical question that implies the answer, yes. Yes, Paul, you have a right to eat and drink. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. So there Paul references the fact that he has a right to be married, and he's, he's bringing back into the conversation everything that he had said in chapter 7. 
Now there in chapter 7, he said, look, I wish that all of you were like me because you'd have more time and ability to focus on the gospel because you don't have a family and children and a wife or a husband to care for. But he's acknowledging here in chapter 8, I do have a right And it's not wrong that the other apostles have wives. It's not wrong that the brothers of Jesus have wives on their ministry journeys. It's not wrong that Peter has a wife. It's like, I have a right to that, but I've surrendered my right for you. And thirdly, he introduces the idea of his right to be financially supported by the Corinthians. And this word right shows up repeatedly. And it's to signal for us this connection between chapter 8 and chapter 9. Because it's in chapter 8 verse 9 that Paul talks to the Corinthians about taking care that their right to eat and drink in the temple. Even though theologically they have a right to do it. That they need to be careful because it might be a stumbling block to the weak. So do I not have a right to eat or drink? Yeah. Do I not have a right to being married? Yeah. Do I not have, verse 6, a right to refrain from working for a living? Well, the idea and the implied answer there is yes. Now let's think back to what Paul did when he first got to Corinth. And Acts verse 18, 1-4 gives us that description. When he arrives, he leaves Athens, he goes to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently who had come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 4 about him reasoning in the synagogue will actually become very important for us as we get into the second half of chapter 9 and what Paul has to say about his ministry to Jews. But here we have that Paul went and found some people who were tent makers and he just started working with them. But here back to chapter 9 verse 6. Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? The issue is this idea as to whether or not Paul would receive money, compensation, however you want to call it, to provide for his basic needs from his preaching or whether he was going to work elsewhere. And he says, this is a right I have surrendered. Now to build his case, he begins to unpack and does so in, in astounding force the point that he's trying to make. And as it relates to the Corinthian church, and as it relates to Greek and Roman culture in the first century, and this idea of gifts being given in exchange to those who would speak or teach, there's some really significant things happening here. And they're a whole lot more significant than eating or drinking. They're a whole lot more significant than marriage. Now, that's not to downplay the significance of marriage, but culturally speaking, if somebody in the first century in Roman and Greek culture was paid to speak 
they became obligated to say what the person who paid them wanted them to say. It was a quid pro quo relationship that is and becomes established. That the person giving the money believes they have entered into some type of social contract that says, I've given you this, you now owe me that, but that that's not always explained, and it's kind of left hanging for whenever the moment is that person wants to cash in on the debt they believe they are owed. One scholar said this, that here Paul is saying that he needs to be free to rebuke. His praise must be above suspicion of being bought. And so as he introduces this idea of the fact that he chose to not work, or he chose to work to provide for his basic needs rather than receive money from the Corinthians, the issue here was Paul choosing to be above reproach and suspicion of his words and his preaching and his message being bought by the wealthy. Now, to demonstrate and to unpack and unfold the idea that he actually has a right to earn a living from them, he follows this verse in 6 up in 7 and gives three what I'm going to call secular examples of where individuals receive compensation from their work to provide for their basic needs. The first is that of soldiers. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Well, the implied answer there is no one. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? The implied answer for the farmers, no one. Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk for the shepherds? The answer would be no one. So he gives them three secular or three just everyday common jobs to show and demonstrate that, yeah, it's just part of society. That you are given compensation for basic needs from what you spend your time doing. It's what soldiers incur. It's what they experience. It's what farmers experience. It's what shepherds experience. And in verse 8, he says, look, this isn't just common life experience. I'm going to now give you four what I will call sacred statements to prove my point. And he says this, do I say these things on human authority? Does the law not say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak for our sake? For it was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thrash in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things, is it too much if we reap material things? And here, the first two of these sacred statements or these authoritative statements are given in verses 9 and 10, the first of which being God's word. And Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4. He says this, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Paul is going to make a very similar point 
and a very explicit command to the Ephesian church in the book of 1 Timothy, citing this passage, telling them that the elders who labor in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor and they should not be muzzled like an ox would not be muzzled. But here Paul is not making the point trying to find himself getting a pay raise. He's trying to develop and make the point that I have a right, an authoritative, a biblical right to these things and I've surrendered it to you. And so he cites God's word as an authority. He cites what probably is likely a Jewish interpretation where the the statement comes in, it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thrash in hope of sharing the crop. It's probably a Jewish interpretation of Deuteronomy 25.4. Think of that like we would think about our study Bibles. So what's on the bottom part of your study Bibles is not inspired by God. It's not authoritative on the same level as the top part. That's the scriptures. But that bottom part can be really helpful if you've got a really good study Bible. And it can help you unpack what God has said. And men and women have devoted their lives to understanding what God has said. And there's a level of scholarship that comes into a good study Bible. And so you can read those notes and be benefited from them. I think that's what's happening in verse 10 there and verse 11, and then we have verse 12, which I said is kind of the key to this whole first section. If others share in this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? There he's saying, look, you guys are, you guys are financially benefiting other people. Do we not have that right? But here's the key. Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure everything. Rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So let's try to just get this back into the big context. Let's just kind of go back up chapter 8, chapter 9. Corinthians, you're right. I agree with you that you have a right. Theologically, there is freedom for you to go to that temple and eat that steak. But love would say, if it causes your brother or sister to stumble... You deny that right. And here Paul has up to this point said, I I have a right to eat and drink. I have a right to be married. I have a right to be financially compensated by you. And I've surrendered them to not somehow or to somehow not make an obstacle for the gospel. Now, in verse 13, he comes back to another authoritative statement, and there he uses the words, do you not know, which he has used up until this point in time throughout the book or letter of 1 Corinthians to say, hey, how did you miss this big idea? Come on, guys. Come on, gals. Focus. Think about what you see just in life. And he references those who would be in temple service. It could be those who serve in Jerusalem at the temple where the Levites and the priests would be doing all of the temple things as commanded by God in the Old Testament, even though that has been put asunder because of the death of Christ and the veil being torn. He could be referencing that, but I think more than likely he's referencing pagan temple practices because this would have been what the Corinthians would have just kind of looked around their city and seen. They didn't have the Jewish temple 
there in Corinth. That's in Jerusalem. But they would have had the temple of Apollos. And you just say, just, guys, just think here for a minute. Is, is this not what happens to the people who serve in those temples? Do they not find compensation given? And lastly, in verse 14, the last authoritative statement he gives is those who proclaim, or in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so, Paul kind of lays down the trump card. Guys, I got Jesus on my side too. I got the Old Testament. I got, I got the study Bible notes. I got what actually happens in pagan temples. And I got Jesus. And it's all for him to draw out and make the point. But I've chosen to surrender. And he does so again in verse 15. And there in verse 12, 15, and 18, he says three different times, I've not made use of these rights. I've made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. One scholar said this, let's think back to first century Roman Greek culture and why this would have mattered so much. Paul would have wanted to separate himself from the variety of hucksters roaming the world with their hands always extended in hopes of getting donations. They taught for profit. And he rebukes them strongly as peddlers who hawk their wares, water down their goods to enhance their bottom line. Paul's trying to distinguish himself from the people that will come and tell the people what they want to hear so they'll give or not tell the people what they need to hear so they don't stop giving. Just think about this in our own context. I said we're prone to this. It's, it's not the same relationship as existed in the first century, but I think, I think we're just kind of prone to this. Not just us, but around everywhere. We're prone to this. So the person who would be generous in expecting kickbacks or preferential treatment inside the church. This is what would be a common example today. Or the person who's generous and gets or expects a pass. I'll tell you this and I'll be real general about it. My first week here. Very first week Almost five years ago, we pulled into town. We're still unpacking boxes. Somebody from our church came down and sat down with me and had an issue they wanted to discuss, something they wanted to see happen. I think you, I think you need to do this, Tim. Well, there, there's some reasons why we're not going to do that specifically, but I, I hear what you're saying. We'll absolutely consider that. We, we want the focus to be on Jesus, regardless of what we do in that example that you give. And, and the response that I received in that moment was, you have a family to feed. You really should think about what I'm asking you to do. This is why Paul says he surrendered his rights. Now, as we think about the relationship between just kind of you and I, because this, this gets, gets personal here for a moment. Because let's just be honest, like you put food on my table, you put gas in my car, 
you're going to help pay the bill for the break work that I need to go in, get a phone call into the shop tomorrow and schedule. The only way this thing actually works the way it's supposed to is if you are concerned more with what God has to say than with what I have to say. And if I am more concerned with what God thinks than what you think. That's the only way this works. That not to sound arrogant, but that I would have the attitude of Paul as he wrote in chapter 4 that's like, hey, Corinthians, say what you want, but I'm actually a whole lot more concerned about what Jesus is going to say when I stand before him than what you guys are going to say here and now. And if your attitude towards me is, you know what, Tim, you say what you want, but we're a whole lot more concerned about what God has to say and not anything that you would come up with on your own. If we can kind of hang out there, which I think we have for the last five years, if we can just kind of keep, keep there, then we can, I think, be in a really good place. But there is a propensity, there's a temptation Well, didn't I serve a bunch? Why don't I get? Or didn't I give a bunch? Why don't I get? And it's not just any, it's not just something we experience. I was talking to a buddy yesterday who's chairman of the board at his church. And he was telling me that he is going to be proposing to his board here soon that their church say no to any financial gift given that has a name attached to it. So a gift in honor of. So we want to, let's just pick something. We want to replace the sound system in honor of this dear, beloved woman who just passed away. Here's a financial gift that lets you do it. He wants to say no. Because he's experienced in his church that that comes with all sorts of strings and baggage. That it actually, in the long run, is detrimental for their church. He told me that, and I was like, that's a bold move. I get what you're saying. It's a bold move. But that is this idea illustrated in 2019. From here, Paul transitions to his ministry as an example. An example to follow, and we're going we're gonna to work our way a little bit more quickly through here. And this is where the scope and the focus changes from those that, that are co-believers or fellow brothers and sisters to those who have not yet heard the gospel. And there's a key to understanding this section, and that key is the second part of verse 22 into verse 23. And there Paul says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You want to understand and unpack this example that he's going to give us in the four different areas that he cites specifically where these things have worked themselves out in practice. There it is. It it is whatever it takes for them to hear and believe in the gospel. That's what I want. And so he cites four different groups and works through how he interacts with these groups. Groups one and two are, are Jews. 
those that are living by Old Testament customs and laws. I would submit to you that the beginning part of verse 20, Paul's talking about ethnic Jews, and he even says that specifically to the Jew, I became as a Jew, but when he writes to those under the law, I became as one under the law, the idea there would be non-ethnic Jewish converts. Okay, so like think of like Joshua, the battle of Jericho, think of Rahab, all right? She was not ethnically Jewish. But she became a non-ethnic Jewish convert and then began following all of the rules and regulations of the Old Covenant. Okay, so that's an example of how these groups are very closely related. And here Paul just says, look, I'm going to do what they do. I'm going to do what they do. Here is what it looks like to love them and build them and have them not have any obstacles to hear the gospel. And so he would have abided by Jewish customs and laws. He would have stayed away from shellfish. He wouldn't have eaten pork. He would have never mixed milk and meat when around these individuals. As we saw in in, in Acts 18 verse 4, he would have gone to the synagogue on their day of worship on the Sabbath. He would have gone as a clean man eligible to come into said synagogue and have audience with them and then would have taught them from their scriptures who Jesus was. Now, Paul has said elsewhere Philippians 3, maybe as the most specific place, that the following of all of these Jewish laws and customs, it's rubbish if you think it gets you any more love or acceptance from God. But here he says, it's not at all rubbish if it gets me an audience with man. I'm going to be all things. I'm going to become all things to all men so that I might win some. So if it's an ethnically Jewish person or somebody abiding by Jewish customs, I'm going to live that same way. It's probably why through the book of Acts, there's some different times that it's recorded by Luke that Paul was breaking a vow. Or he was done fulfilling a vow, more appropriately. It's why he had Timothy be circumcised. Timothy didn't have to be. Paul makes that abundantly clear in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. But I'm going to become all things to all men so that I might win some. In verse 21, we have the scope shifting to non-Jews, to Gentiles, so to those outside the law. I became as one outside the law. Now he qualifies this because he doesn't want us to think that he's just become like a little hellion running around doing what he wants. So there in parentheses he says, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. And I did so that for the purpose of I may win those outside the law. So Paul's not saying, I just decided I'm going to do what I want to do. No, he's still very much obeying and abiding by the instructions that God has given him. But he's going to become as one outside the law. And as I just mentioned, in verse or chapter 7 tells us, he doesn't demand circumcision for 
new male believers. He's not going to demand observance of the Sabbath. With Gentiles, he's going to sit down and have a double bacon cheeseburger. And he's going to eat, and it'll be good. Because it's not an obstacle for them. It might actually be an obstacle if he didn't partake in what they were offering him. And I think we can identify a whole lot more with this this category as we just think about how we interact and engage neighbors, coworkers, those around us. I think about how like Phil and Sarah are engaging those in China. You know what they're doing? They're they're learning Chinese. So to win the Chinese, I'm learning the Chinese language and customs and foods so that I might not put an obstacle in the way of them hearing the gospel. Roy and Holly, they do things that Irish people do, which actually includes drinking a pint of beer every once in a while because that's part of what Irish people do. And they do so so that there's not an obstacle for the gospel to be heard. They do so to win some and not be a distraction. In our fellowship, there's been been moments where we haven't gotten this right. And here's a comical one for you. If you would travel over to Africa, and it's not nearly as prevalent now as it maybe was 15 20 years ago, but if you would travel over to Africa in some of our African churches, which there's a couple thousand of them over there, you would find the guy preaching wearing a suit and tie. Because when the original Grace Brother and missionaries went, whether they implied it or whether they just specifically said it, it became learned that the guy who preaches wears a suit and tie. Hardly anybody in Africa wears a suit and tie, but the guy who preaches has got to wear a suit and tie. And I remember sitting there in Dr. Plaster's theology class and him recounting to us that when he goes to Africa, he takes one suit, one tie, and one shirt, and he wears it every time he preaches, and he throws it away when he's done, because after all of those engagements in the 100-degree heat, the suit is good for nothing, and it doesn't make the trip home. But that is not an African custom. That is an American custom that has been transferred to Africa. Is it wrong? Well, not necessarily. Is it right? Well, not necessarily. At the very least, it's not them, it's us. But here's what Paul's saying, look, to to the Gentiles, I'm not going to impose things on them that aren't them, and I'm going to come to them in ways that are them so that they will listen. And lastly, in verse 22, he references the weak. And that is to take our focus and attention back to the very people that he discussed in chapter 8. And it's a reminder that if your actions would cause difficulty for someone whose conscience is not as strong as yours, it may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. And as a brother or sister, you have an obligation to them and the Lord to put no stumbling block in their way. 
tried to think through a little bit of what we might be unwilling to surrender for the sake of the gospel. There's some big categories that come to mind. The specifics could be, there could be a multitude of them. But I think of a couple things. One is comfort. Am I willing to surrender comfort for the sake of the gospel? Am I willing to have uncomfortable conversations for the sake of the gospel? How about security? Some of you that work in non, non-church work environments, you might have a very real question about whether you would still be employed if you were bold for the gospel. There's a question of security there. I thought about just personal autonomy. It's kind of the, the biggest category of them all that sums up a lot of what Paul's been writing about. Would I surrender my rights, my freedoms, for you? You know what Paul wouldn't say? At chapter 9, it's pretty clear that he wouldn't say. He wouldn't say, don't tread on me. He'd say, I voluntarily surrender. And this is not about me. This is about Jesus. And if I need to decrease so that he might increase, that's what I'm going to do wherever it needs to be done and however it needs to be done. Because that's where hope is. And that's in whom we have hope. My hope is not in my ability to uphold my personal autonomy. My hope is in Christ, and he calls me to follow his lead and be willing to lay it all down to not be a distraction. And Jesus, we pray that you would help us to do that, that you would give us a far greater understanding of your love for us than we have now, that it would cause us to be those who want to build up one another and not put a stumbling block in any other's way. And we would, we would not put any obstacle in the way of an unbeliever to hearing the gospel. That we would not say, don't tread on me. That we would say, I willingly lay me down. And it's because of who you are and the grace and mercy that we have received from you and the hope we have in you. We pray this in your good name. Amen. Would you stand as they close us?